Welcome to UX Radio, the podcast that generates collaborative discussion about information architecture, user experience, and design. Here's your host, Laura Federoff. How do you create impact without permission? Sometimes you just gotta break the rules. Other times it's a matter of changing your perspective. I recently talked with Adam Polanski. He's an active and established leader in the UX community. In fact, currently he's working as a UX strategist with Bottle Rocket, one of the most successful mobile app agencies in the world. His career began in advertising designs and took a few sharp turns along the way. Here's what he shared with me about how he got started and what he learned. Well, as, as I said, when I was a kid, you know, there, there, there's always like the kid who draws or one of those kids who draws and I was one of them. My father, having been in marketing and advertising all the time I was growing up, I was surrounded by those people. And so I had, you know, as long as I can remember, a sense of, of the business of design. And about the time, while I was still in high school, my father got me uh, an introduction to a guy who had a small agency. And that's kind of an interesting story of itself uh, in that he had been the art photography director for the Dallas Morning News in the 50s and 60s. He had been the creative director for the Zales Corporation. And he always wanted to teach, and he had a teaching degree. But he didn't like the traditional classroom. And so his way to teach was to open a small agency and uh, find knuckleheads like me to um, teach the business. And what this amounted to was learning how to do production-ready art, uh, photography, black and white color, uh, typesetting, which goes all the way back to, uh, if anybody hears this who knows what a big blue blue monster, blue CompuGraphic, that was what I learned how to set type on. Uh, Line drawings, and so my desk was uh, was an artboard, you know, at at 30 degrees and with the T-square. One of the things I discovered though along the way is that my while my hand skills were obviously good enough to get a job it seemed like everybody ever saw its work was but I felt like their work was better than mine right but I also discovered that I could do a better job communicating the concept of an ad or the concept of a campaign and working with another designer things came out the other end looking more the way I envisioned or better than I'd envisioned if I had done them myself so It would be many years before I realized the significance of that, but I've had a fairly long and checkered career in everything from being in the military, professional services, which is a nice way of saying putting in toilets, (laughs) uh, working in restaurants, in sales and printing and production work, sales service uh, in business forms, printing. And so I kept kind of coming back to that. But no matter what I did or where I was, I always seemed to find myself in this position of liaison. There are some people on one, there are some people who have big ideas about something that they want to do, and there are some people who who build this stuff. And there's somebody who sits in the middle, and somebody who translates that, and somebody who can speak more than one language in this case. And whether it was my job officially or not, that was what I always wound up doing. I always seemed to gravitate into that position. There would be a need for it, and and either I would step up or somebody would say, yeah, yeah, go get Adams. That I had right. Done you know, we're not quite sure what he does, but he's handy in this kind of degree in, in these design. circumstances. This so time around, coming out of the military, later, I went back I had worked for enough small companies uh, and I'd seen what happens to entrepreneurship when and decided at one the people point, running them don't have a very good sense of business. 
they're very good at what they do. They're craftsmen, they're technicians, right. but they either don't surround themselves with the right people or they just don't have the right people there to manage the business part of running an operation. Sure. And so I thought no matter what I do, I need to have a better handle on that. So I went back to school and I finished a uh, Bachelor of Science in Business Administration okay. and picked up a, uh, another degree along the way with that. And about that time, there was the rise of these small internet agencies, these little boutiques, six guys on cafeteria tables, you know, in various places. And I was introduced to a guy and I carried his card around for about a year and a half because at the time I was really focused on finishing my degree. Sure. There were no summers off. I was carrying more than a full load most of the time and working full time at night Wow. Uh, with my wife supporting me while that was going on. That was nice of her. Yeah, I hope she feels like she got the thing <laughs> off. But I went to talk to this guy in this small group and he got up on a whiteboard and drew sort of the way they operated, their, their process if you want to call it that. And he asked where do you fit? And I said, well, there's guys up there selling stuff and guys here thinking big thoughts. And then there's guys down here building. And I live right there in the middle. I don't know what you call that. Well, neither did he. But uh, this was my first interview. And I really was feeling like this was just to kind of get used to the sound of my voice. I really wasn't looking for anything to happen there. And right. He says, okay, well, call me tomorrow with what you think is an acceptable package. I had no clue. What qualified me up to this point was that I could surf the Internet from home. And that was about it. So I really didn't have a real keen understanding of what was really going on yet with this industry. So I called my brother-in-law down in Austin, who was a well-established geek, and said, <laughs> what do you ask for something like this? And he gave me a number, and I came back, I gave him the number, and he beat the number. So nice. I said, so I had a job right after what I finished my degree. What was the title? Uh, there wasn't one. Okay. We had none because they weren't very stylish <laughs> at the time. Um, and that group was later absorbed and merged and grew into one of the bigger agencies during a period when everybody was trying to set themselves up like an Anderson Consulting sure. um, with you know, the secret sauce. And so you had these, these agencies that just grew at obscene rates with offices all over the world. And then 2001, everything turned sideways and that was the end of that. And in this particular case, it, the, the company was run by a guy who was running it as a financial play. And the blush was off that rose, and, and uh, that was the end of that story. So, like a lot of folks, I found myself with some spare time. But during that period, what happened was I spent the first two years not having any title. I was just this handy guy to have around. And I did everything from uh, managing the books and payroll and facilities to what we would later come to call information architecture. Sure. We just didn't have a name for it. And in advertising, I was just doing the things that I did to conceptualize the beginning of a campaign. So there was a lot of sketching involved, right. and uh, I would translate things into you know some digital formats just to make them a little clearer. Mm -hmm. uh, but they were for all intents and purposes wireframes. Uh, right. And I would do a lot of site maps uh, for these websites and came up with sort of stylized versions of those, and those became very popular. Everybody wanted us, all the clients wanted sitemaps after they saw the first one. They, they, I'm sure. They, they looked good on the wall. They were fictional after about 10 minutes, but they looked good on the wall. So it sounds like you were able to understand the business goals that they mm -hmm. wanted to achieve, but you also could speak the dev language and 
sort of help everybody understand what you needed to achieve? Not so much the dev language, and even to, and even now I don't speak a lot of that. Okay. But what I have at least is the sense to take a very raw concept and get with the guys who do understand it and do speak that and vet what I'm doing with them just to make sure that I'm not painting them into a corner or that I'm not inventing something that you know, either can't happen, uh, isn't going to happen, or at least is outside the reach of whoever's going to build the thing. Because sometimes it'll be a really cool new idea and the developers will look at that and scratch their chins a little bit and say, you know, there isn't anything like that. I think I have an idea how to make that happen. And that's, that's when the magic starts. Yes. So it, it wasn't about speaking their language as much as it was just being courteous. <laughs> That's important. And checking with them and, and walking through these ideas and including them in that conversation because ultimately whatever it is I could get a client to commit to, they were on the hook to build. So it, it wasn't so much about thinking of process as it was just kind of covering my ass to make sure that, that I didn't make impossible work for someone else sure just be nice <laughs> and that's important I think and it's really great when they can say we can do that but we want to tweak it and this way is going to be better right and being open and you have to be open to those changes plus nowadays the, a lot of these guys have built enough of this stuff that they begin to have a pretty interesting sense of their own of something that might be useful and that's true for the designers, and that's true for a lot of the, the, the folks on the business side as well. But I think today, probably the, the, that space which sees the most conflict is still between user experience and business, and then it can be technology as well. Right. Uh, it just sort of depends on their perspectives and what's driving them and any number of things uh, you know, f that set up the way they're accountable. Your mileage will vary. So there aren't sweeping statements you can make, but they do fall into persona, I guess is a good way to put it. It's another yeah, nice way exactly. of saying generalizing. <laughs> uh. <laughs> well, you have such an impressive career with American Express, Travelocity, Dr. Pepper. What were some of the biggest ahas, things that you took away from that experience? Well, when you're working with large enterprise environments, it can be very soul-leading because you got the same politics and you got a lot of the same stuff that goes on, you know, in, in large companies, uh, large, large conflicts, conflicts play themselves out in small, in some of these environments. And there are agendas that aren't visible to everybody, but it was during that time that I was doing work for Radio City Entertainment. And in this particular case, Radio City Entertainment was a very, fairly small entity. They didn't have a lot of money. However, they were owned by Cablevision, which is a family-owned operation, which owns many major sports teams and retail and main cable provider in the Northeast. And so there was a bigger prize if we could do well with this one. And this client had needed a website, and they had two goals, and they were very clear. One was a marketing goal, which is differentiate Radio City Entertainment from Radio City Music Hall. Now, they own that venue, and they also owned the, uh, owned the theater at Madison Square Garden, but they were a production company. They would produce stuff that would happen all over the country and in various other venues as well. So everybody would hear Radio City and they would think of the venue and not think of the production right. company. So they wanted to create the beginning of a distinction there. And then they had the business goal, which was simple. Get them on the website, show them a calendar, get them to click through to Ticketmaster and buy tickets to events. Done. 
So we went up to New York and mapped out a site and we went through a bit of an issue in that we had a new creative director who had joined our agency who came from a very high-end retailer and whatever they did was the gold standard. I think the bigger issue was that this was a time when nobody really knew where all this was going or what we were going to do with it. The cool thing about that is everybody felt like they had a lot to learn. This person not so much. And so the first sit down with the client went really well. Uh, we got a lot of work done. But the second time we went up, she joined us and threw a whole bunch of things in there on the table that just were not even remotely feasible, possible, affordable, really kind of all over the place and all based on the standards set at this retailer. Well, this was my boss, so I couldn't really tell her she was an idiot. Um, <laughs> and I also had a client that was looking to me for answers because they weren't just going to call her an idiot either. So I came up with a way to qualify features and functions within an application. And it's not unlike what a lot of people still do in projects where you get everybody in a room and you say, okay, let's rate this stuff. Or if you're playing the agile game, you know, doing the agile poker and coming up with scores essentially to grade or weight stories. And my way of doing this was to take every function and feature in this app because they they're all listed out. We had this inventory, um, but there were a bunch of ideas in there that really weren't going to go anywhere. And the best example was the interactive rocket paper doll. Oh, nice. Yeah, well, it didn't do anything to distinguish <laughs> the client from the venue. Sure. It actually went the opposite direction. This was also at a time when Flash was still in its infancy, and so web apps that allowed you to do drag and drop and a lot of those functions were still kind of new, and the people who knew how to do that they weren't cheap. So this was way out of the ballpark for us, but I couldn't just say that stupid. Sure. And, and what was the purpose of that, and was it achieving your goals? Right. And the answer, obviously, right. is no. But she wasn't hearing much of that. So when we went through... The grading process, what I did is I took each feature and I asked the people on the product side to give it a grade. And I wanted them to be very specific. I only wanted them to worry about whether or not this is a feature that will either make or save money. And then I asked the development guys to also give a rating, their own rating, based on how hard or easy it was to do. So there are your two agile things right there, business risk and ease of implementation. But I also sectioned out another set for user value. What will a person make of this? Will, will, it, will it make for a good experience or not? And I asked people really to put on the blinders. And so that did a few things. It kept people from badgering folks in other groups to come around to their way of thinking about a particular feature or function. It also kept it out of the control of the person in the room with the most power. Now, that doesn't mean they still couldn't just trump everybody because they have that capability, but it's a little harder in daylight yes. with everybody there when everybody else is in earnest and doing, you know, playing the game the way it ought to go. Uh, if you're trying to trump everybody in that space, you're, you're really kind of being a deliberate asshole. Most people aren't assholes deliberately. Right. <laughs> so was this anonymous or was it in a group setting? It was in a group setting. Okay. And what I did, and this was the connection point, is we were talking to we were talking about users and technology and business ownership and I made a connection between those three things and time cost and money which are the three constraints you have in every project and some people would say you get two that's a lie you get one 
because you will break a tie. If you try to, if you try to select two at any level, you're going to break the tie between them. Something will happen. What I figured out was that cost was mostly the province of the business ownership. Time was mostly the province of technology. And in some cases, they were interchangeable, but at least within that context. And quality was mostly the, within the province of user experience. So it's not, these aren't clean hard lines, but they're close enough. So we would do another little exercise, kind of like I was describing before, where you try to figure out between time, cost, and quality, which of those things has the least amount of flexibility. That one's usually obvious. If there's hard date that something needs to be right. done, that just, it's in the driver's seat sure. now. And so that means between cost and quality in a fight, which one will win? So quality means there are functions in this application or capabilities in this application that absolutely must be there no matter what or there's no point in doing right. it. Right. From the cost standpoint, it's we run out of money here. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty obvious. And in this particular case, it was cost because there was a set amount of money. Now, what they didn't know is in order to get the bigger piece of business, we were willing to absorb a little bit. So there's a little bit of a buffer there that we weren't letting them in on. But by doing that, I could then take the fact that I knew one of those areas between the three had no flexibility in it. I could take all the scores in that column and weight them. In this case, it was by three. Okay. And then the next one down the line, all those scores were weighted by two. And the last one, all all by one. And what I got was one number for each of those features and functions. And I sorted on that number. And I've been doing this now for about nine years. And somehow, magically... There's always a perfect demarcation line that shows where either the money runs out or time is up or everything above the line is a complete solution and everything below the line is either a variation on a theme or something that has no business being there in the first place, such as the Rocket Paper Doll. (laughs) So, yeah, and so without my having to point fingers or anything, these ideas... You see the degree to which I went just to cover my ass and keep from just saying that's stupid. Well, it served you well, obviously, because it's a great process. And uh, so, yeah, the paper doll winds up at the bottom of the list, and it was done by consensus, and nobody had to tell anybody else they were being an idiot. It just wound up there on its own. Oh, gosh, isn't that a shame? So um, The paper doll was good. Because it instigated the whole process. Could say. Uh, yeah, I've got a lot of tracks out of that. <laughs> it was good and bad. <laughs> but that was probably, I've gotten more mileage out of that exercise. Uh, it's since been published in a couple of different couple of different venues, so Boxes and Arrows and, and a uh, textbook that if you were an unfortunate college student uh, about five, six years ago in the UK, you might have read it. I'm not even sure it's in print anymore. But it's still something that I use in one way, shape, or form. It's really about using bias, extreme bias, to get an unbiased scope because you're not letting the characters drive what the constraints are. You're letting the overarching, or what, what the scores are, you're letting the overarching constraints that everyone has already agreed upon drive what gets the more emphasis and what gets less emphasis. Right. That was probably the biggest thing that came out of that period, uh, at least for me. That's awesome. And, uh, yeah, I still dust it off. You should have a little paper doll on your desk. Yeah, I've got a picture of her. <laughs> I'd like to see it. That'd be awesome. It's a presentation. Well, for your talk here at the IA Summit, I know you're talking about creating impact without permission. Mm-hmm. And so maybe you could talk a little bit about that. Sure. So as we were saying before, there there is often an impasse between what a business 
feels like they need to do for the health of their business and what people in the user experience space would, would expect to see or would want to be able to do in order to make that business successful. There are a lot of things that contributed to this that have crystallized even since I originally put this presentation together. And part of it had to do with coming out of a place as uh, I was the user experience director at Travelocity and I'd been there for about eight years and, and for all intents and purposes we'd reached a point where we were mostly rearranging furniture. The checkout path for purchasing a hotel or, or a flight is pretty much what it is and you're just sort of trying to squeeze every last conversion dollar out of that process right. that you can knowing that there's you know 25, 30 other folks doing almost exactly the same thing. When I left Travelocity, I had a period of time where I could be a little leisurely in my job search, and I had the chance to go on several interviews. And having conversations with businesses, the ad agencies seemed to stick out the most as the ones that frightened me the most, in that I was hearing things like, yes, we need user experience, we got to get that in here, and we want you to come in and help set up this whole... Uh, you know, this whole practice, and uh, I would ask questions like, well, do your line of business owners share this vision? Do your product directors, product managers, your client, your account managers share this vision? Uh, do, your, do your creative directors share this vision? The team. Yeah, um, but certainly the people who have, within these companies, who have the most leverage. And I would hear things, well, yeah, well, not really... You know, we kind of expect you to kind of help build that up, and my response was the same, and it became almost a litany to the point that I would say, okay, I want two things. I want, uh, I want executive, I'm a corporate mandate, and I want executive air cover. I need the whole company to know that this is going to be important and that it's not going to be easily kicked to the curb when other pressures and pains come to bear, and they will. And then I need to have executive air cover. So if the argument goes above my pay grade, so to speak, then I need to know that there's somebody coming in behind me who can level it back off again. And there was great reluctance to offer those things. And I began to get a little discouraged. Do you think it's because they didn't understand the value of the role? I don't think it had to do with roles. I really don't. I think it has to do more with how certain people grade success and this goes back to a story that I like to tell that really kind of happened only a few years ago. Working as an artist and as a designer, of course, you know, you, you, you show people your stuff. And whenever I would show things from my portfolio, one of the things I noticed over the years is that if people looking at it had any idea at all about creativity, they would ask questions about the inspiration or the medium that I chose or something along those lines. And if they didn't have an idea about creativity or design, I would get the exact same question every single time, which was, how long did that take? And that used to really piss me off, and I would sit there and just say, oh, the schmuck doesn't get it. And that's kind of in small what happens in the user experience space, is people who don't understand it marginalize it, and the user experience people feel ill-used, and they sit on the curb, and they grumble, and they you know, bitching on about how those bastards just don't get it. And that was what I did until I realized something, and coming on the other end of a couple of business degrees, I realized that it's not that they don't get it. They don't. But when faced with having to appraise something that they don't necessarily understand, they want to say something nice. And so they want to translate it into the thing, something that they think must have value, which is time. 
okay, since it's a piece of artwork and I'm not doing anything with it and I'm not trying to sell it, it doesn't do any good to ask me how much that costs. Uh, although I did get that question sometimes, which was nice, but that only left, okay, well, if it took a lot of time, then it must, it must be good. And when I realized that all that was really going on was somebody was trying to be nice and they were just trying to say something that put it in a co that that put value in a context that they could understand i could stop being mad at all of these people for however many years had made it into my ship parade and because they just were idiots they just didn't get it <laughs> i was just trying to be nice so the idea with this presentation initially was to speak to two audiences to talk to business people in this case it's a ux crowd but to talk to business people about how to get the best out of user experience and a user experience team. They know what they want from it. You know, they have examples out there. And uh, they, they want these outcomes, but they aren't willing to put the same things into the effort to get those outcomes. Apple stands out as an example, as probably one of the best examples, but there are other companies as well who have protected design. On the UX side, it's talking to the UX professionals to say, look, here's what's going on with these guys. They didn't get up this morning and decide to be jerks. Here's what's driving them. Here's what they're accountable for. They're going to be standing in front of somebody once, maybe twice a year, having to explain why their predictions for the success of the company did or didn't work. And that's why when they come to you and say, well, before you can do this, Mr. UX person or Mrs. UX person, I need an estimation of exactly how this is going to work, and I need to know bit by bit how it's going to go. And of course, that's fiction, usually 10 minutes in. But it's because their world makes sense when it can be turned into an algorithm. And it's the feeling that you have to demand an algorithm out of design that causes a disconnect. So that leaves us trying to say, well, but we know intuitively that a good user experience is going to be good for business. But we can't prove how. We can't show it in decimal points. And it's because it's not an A plus B equals C equation. It's uh, A plus a few other things equals E or F. And that sort of opaque veil over the things that happen in between that people are uncomfortable with. One of my favorite quotes is from uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Oh, yes. And the uh, Philosopher's Guild, just as they're about to find out the, the answer to life, the use of the universe and everything, the Philosopher's Guild busts in and they go on and on. But their chief demand is that we demand rigidly defined areas of doubt and uncertainty. And I love that idea. It, because when I'm talking about process, I can say to, uh, to a product owner that here are these gateways that we know we need to cross, but you're going to have to leave me alone in between those gateways. We know what, the, what we're going to have to be able to demonstrate here, but how I get there, you're going to have to let me go with that one because I don't know. We talk about reactive design and there are other new buzzwords that make you compliant these days, but to me that is what has always been what we do. We assess and we adjust, but we have to be given the opportunity to assess and then make a plan and adjust to that and adjust to that plan. Or if we're doing, we're already downstream in something to reassess and adjust to that, manage people's expectations. That has always been at the core of working a project. It's when we try to script the whole thing out in advance and expect that activity to equal a particular number that we've already predicted as well, we're going to be disappointed. If we can get people, and this is going to come straight from any number of other folks talking about the same thing, whether you talk to Jeff Gothelf about lean design or you talk to uh, Jeff Parks about the workshops he's doing, it's about focusing on outcomes. Okay, This is the thing you want to have happen. This is what there looks like. So we'll know when we're there. Okay, 
if you give me enough latitude to figure out how to get there and to communicate to you that we can get there and not bug me on all the little things in between, you're going to be pretty happy with the outcome. Otherwise, what we're going to be doing is we're going to be arguing a lot when things don't exactly fall into place with this script that we've tried to predict. There's a saying in the military that no strategy ever survives its first encounter with the enemy. Uh, I would like to get away from the whole adversarial thing there, but it is going to ultimately boil down to, as I said before, first it's good manners, uh, and it's also trust. It is trust. Yeah, and definitely. trust is a big chunk of what I'll talk about today, too. You kind of can help yourself by doing a little bit of an audit. Do how well are you trusted and are and by whom? And are you trusted by the right people? How can you influence that? Sometimes, you know, your credentials will get you trust walking in the door and it's yours to lose. Right. Other times, you may have to dig your way out of a hole that somebody else dug. And it's not even your fault. Somebody who's not even with the company anymore has, has put you in a bad spot. Now you've got to bail it out. But whether you earn it or, or keep it, you still have to you still have to get it and that's what you're gonna to have to trade on because pain comes from bad quality or running out of time or running out of money. But the time and the money make themselves felt a lot earlier. And when that's the case, the horizon for quality is, is usually further out here and that's why it, it becomes so easy to marginalize the user experience part of things. It's not because anybody wants a bad product. It's not because anybody wants bad quality. It's just because from the the, the standpoint of putting out fires and accountability, they're going to have to answer to the money and they're going to have to answer to the time immediately. And so they start to micromanage and get involved and start doing things to demonstrate to other people who aren't involved every day why, you know, how things are going. And that's where uh, that's where things start, start dying. And then at some point you start casting off sandbags and the user experience part can look like a sandbag when you're in that circumstance. Yeah, I think I found at the beginning of a project is the most challenging because you do have to overcome the time and the cost constraints. But if you're able to start where you end up by presenting what you can achieve and get their buy-in, on that beginning area, then if you have a little bit of, you know, issues during the design and development, the executives are a little more flexible because they still want to show the good product at the end that they can say, look what I did. Yeah, and it sounds a little silly, but you kind of have to, they got to have a little faith, Mm -hmm. which is another way of saying that they've got to trust you. Uh, they have to hopefully engender that in the people who are looking at them for answers as well. Uh, their bosses, whether it's a board of directors or, or an executive group, which don't seem to be long on that. Anyway, the rest of the presentation, I go through about five different measures that an individual UX practitioner can take, essentially by working in the periphery. So rather than going and asking, can I do this, that, or the other thing, just do it. It may mean working in your off hours. It may mean working nights and weekends to get this done because if you simply go and do the thing and you come forward with the results, come forward with the outcome, and you give them a taste and say, isn't this great? Isn't it great to have this input and have this informing what we're doing? We could be doing more of this. These are things that have been you know, sort of usual suspects for the user experience community for a long time, the notion of doing a heuristic analysis. Okay, uh, one person could do that. It's basically an expert review, and there are uh, enough good sets of guidelines out there so that when you come forward with those responses, it is essentially your opinion, but it's a set of, against a set of guidelines yes. that are generally accepted. And so it's not just me saying, here, we should do this because I'm smart and I say so. It's saying, these are some rules most people follow. 
doing uh, remote usability testing. Most of the, uh, the websites out there that offer that usually offer a little freebie period. So you get a demo period where you, right. can, uh, you could put together a little prototype that is just you know clickable wireframes or right. something like that. And you could run it past about 10 people. And, and it's not going to give you something very definitive, but it's going to give you something indicative. that says, you know, I went and ran this by 10 people and six of them said this. That, that probably deserves a longer look. And then to the example I just gave, prototype something. Whether it's using Axure or Balsamic or any of the new tools that they have out there that are web-based or device-based for mobile apps, build something that sings and dances a little bit. Because stick that in someone's hands or let them do it and they get it. The first time I ever did a prototype using Axure, it was really an inelegant thing. It was but ugly. But it covered a lot of complex thinking and there was a lot of complex interactions there and it was difficult to do because I really had to keep it straight in my mind all of the bits and pieces that I had going on there and the sequence in which I needed to show them because it really was staged. But I had to go into a, a review with our development team and this was about six guys, you know, most of whom I'd known for a while. And the project manager asked me, you know, do I need to schedule this? Should I schedule this for about know two hours and I said eh, you better make it three these things are usually pretty painful 30 minutes later we were done wow they got it they went back and had me dig back into a couple of little places but they thought that was the greatest thing since sliced bread they totally understood it and it was just because I had I didn't have to sit there and hold up pieces of paper and describe an abstract how I thought things would work or, sure. or reach for the right piece of paper and say now it would look like this and now it'll look like that I could just show them. Yeah. And, you know, that speaks to the same value that's being promoted by the guys who are saying, do all your prototypes in HTML5, or do all your prototypes in Illustrator, or do all your prototypes in this tool or that tool or the other tool. The answer to all of them is yes. Just use, do it. Use the tool that makes the most sense to you, that helps you create a level of understanding. A few years back, we had Richard Saul Werman out here at the summit for uh, in Phoenix. And he talked about a lot of things, but one of the nuggets that he dropped out there that I really latched onto was that an IA's job is to create understanding. You know, we get really enamored of our deliverables, we, I don't know how great our wireframes are, or, or the prototypes that we're building. And they're only great if they do that, if they create understanding. And if you used a little bit of economy in your thinking so you didn't go overboard and kill a lot of unnecessary time. If I could get an idea across by doing hand gestures and making animal sounds, I've done the wireframe. The people who are saying, well, this is the best way or the only way, don't listen to any of that. Whatever way works best for you. And if you have a client who's just still not getting it and the needs have just outstripped your own skill set, then find someone to help. Find out what that level is that where understanding clicks over. It can happen really, really early, and a lot of people don't even try then. They're more likely to go off into much more complex, complicated things. And yeah, it may hedge their bets, but it's, it also, I think, sometimes paints them into a deeper corner. You talked about heuristic reviews, remote user testing, mm -hmm. prototyping. What are the other measures? Uh, guerrilla user testing, which is something Russ Unger talks about quite a bit. Uh, and again, it, it's, it's another variation of getting prototypes together and you know, getting out to the coffee shop. The thing about creating impact without permission, you're saying just go ahead and do these things yeah. and that will help to get you the buy-in. Yeah, they're relatively small exercises that can happen fairly quickly. And so you've got a couple of things going for you when you come back. First of all, 
they know you've account you've accounted for your time so you haven't been screwing around while this has gone on and while that's gone on you've also come back and said look here's something of of use of value the key is to take these things not some of them will stand up just as they are they're neat they're cool i get it says says the boss but you may need to take it a little bit further and put it in the context of those things that they're understanding what they see as a burn down rate they see money evaporating or they see the, the time going away or they you know or they're becoming concerned about what the final product is going to look like because they feel like they've begun to have to cut the corners and sacrifice any of those circumstances you have to choose wisely which of these methods you're going to use and you're going to combine them but they got to suit the circumstance but you also need to be able to come back and say here's what this means to you in terms of money here's what this means to you in terms of time we can save ourselves some time if we set a little aside now to do this otherwise we're going to keep going blind and we're you know we never have time to do it right but we always have time to do it over we start going into the I mean, there's nobody in this business who hasn't been through the pain of the late stages of a project that is in danger of missing its its launch date and inevitably does or it does make its launch date and you immediately take it down because of all the things that you know you need to fix it's getting people to again just see that equation that maybe has another element or two in it beyond abc even if it's just abcd to, to give you a little attitude for even one of those things, it'll pay off downstream. Mm -hmm. And getting people to look that far down the line, which even sometimes you're even just talking a couple of weeks, is hard to do. And I've noticed sometimes we've had to break the rules a little bit and kind of push the boundaries, especially working in a Fortune 500 company, these large corporations. You have to push the envelope just enough, but still keep the whole political thing in balance. And that's a yeah. tricky tightrope. Yep. And like I said, it's not about sitting there in the UX cocoon talking about, you know, thinking about what great stuff you've got and why nobody gets it and why nobody wants the toys that you're building. It's about taking the things that you have and painting them within the context of somebody else's value which is technically what we ought to do in the first place. Right. We tend to think about the users in that way, but your business owners and your technicians are your users too. Well, thank you so much. I'm really looking forward to your presentation at the IA Summit. Thank you. UX Radio is produced by Laura Federoff. If you want more UX Radio, you can subscribe to our free podcast on iTunes or go to ux-radio.com where you'll find podcasts, resources, and more. This episode of UX Radio is sponsored by Parallax Branding and Interactive. At Parallax Branding and Interactive, we're not your ordinary design firm. We call ourselves a branding and interactive agency, but really, we're in the business of helping our clients make a difference in people's lives. We work with clients who educate, innovate, and create positive social impact. We call it building brands with purpose. Does your business aim to cultivate knowledge, spread awareness, or create meaningful connections with your audience? Do you need help with branding, strategy, or interactive design. Parallax Branding and Interactive can help. We live, breathe, and love design, 
for exceptional listeners, strategists, marketers, and communicators. And we always deliver what we promise. We choose clients we believe in, and that's why they choose us. Visit www.thinkparallax.com. That's think, P-A-R-A-L-L-A-X.com slash UX radio for a free consultation. Parallax Branding and Interactive, building brands with purpose.